All right, before I get to my next guest, Ross Greenberg, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben, ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world, and that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and feedback investment clubs simply can provide. <clears throat> and their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications. Let me say that again, your exacting specifications, and they do it in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll only find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment online at benhogangolf.com. Visit them there today to learn about their great products and their great prices. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now joining me here on Next on the Tee is Ross Greenberg. Ross has been a great friend over on the football side on our show Thursday Night Tailgate for several years, and it's a privilege to have him joining me tonight on this show. Let me give you some background on him. He spent 33 years at HBO, served as vice president and executive producer of HBO Sports from 1985 to 1990, senior vice president and executive producer from 1990 to 2000, and president of HBO Sports from 2000 to 2011. Left there and started Ross Greenberg Productions and has since made some of the best sports documentaries of this or any other time for that matter. You've probably seen the all-access shows he's done for uh, Showtime, some of the fantastic hockey and boxing uh, events he's done there. Also did the, the Road to the Winter Classic and the Road to the Stanley Cup Series. He's also done a couple of my favorites, David Ortiz in the Moment plus a few Jack Nicholas videos for the USGA. He's won over 100 major television awards, including 56 sports Emmys, 21 Cable Ace Awards, 12 Golden Eagle Awards, plus five International Monitor Awards and eight T-Bodies. And I'm very honored he's with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Ross, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you. <laughs> I enjoyed that other <laughs> that other uh, interview. Ah, I appreciate you. So... <laughs> Ross, it's been a minute since we had an opportunity to catch up. We spoke on the football side earlier this year. How are things going for you? Well, pretty well. I mean, as weird as this time is, and I really reach out to everyone and just wish them the best and a healthy, happy period that we're going through. Um, I've sold a lot because I think the bottom line is it, it, we're at a point in sports where, you know, the kind of programming that that I do is is really important because people need a dose of sport, as we saw from the last dance even. Um, and so I'm able to kind of get out in the field and, and lock up some, some new programming in a lot of different areas. So I'm actually having a good time. You know, I sold a movie to Netflix, a documentary to ESPN, a, a, a follow series with Amazon. So it's it's been really fun. <laughs> Believe it or not, you know, no, can't get no into kidding. any production, but it's, you know, nice to have sold a lot. So, are, are there some of those things that uh, that you've got coming up that you can sort of give us a peek under the tent about, or or is that too early on well, in the why, process? Yeah, I mean, I I sold a movie that I've been trying to make for 15 years on the U.S. women's soccer team from '99 and their saga from really '91 to '99. Um, Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Brandy Chastain, and all of them. 
And it's really a women's empowerment story to show that they were the first team, and they were pioneers, the first team to be taken seriously as women in American sports and really worldwide. So that's a real passion project for me, and that that thing is uh, going to be magical. We're right now looking for writers, and and uh, Netflix bought it, and you know they seem to be doing pretty well. They're a machine, so uh, looking forward to that. And that's a feature film. Uh, that'll you know, like I did Miracle years ago. That'll be a feature. Yeah. So that's an exciting project. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm waiting for. The NHL to start up, uh, and so I have a couple projects with them, and then you know onwards and upwards. So looking forward to it. Maybe I'll get some golf projects going too. I've been talking to the USGA a little bit again, and I, I hope to do some more golf because it's really a fun sport for me. I grew up playing it, and you know lived on the 15th hole of Wingfoot. So um, wow. growing up, and yeah, went back every day after school and and walked my way onto the course for six holes and no one ever bothered me. Uh, and then I do a loop and, uh, and that's really how I learned to play the game. Believe it or not, I belong to a different club, but Wingfoot was like home for me. Literally. <laughs> Living right there on the 15th hole. Did, did you get to see any of the greats come to, come through playing through in a tournament or a practice round? Always. I mean, actually I started in sports because of, Wingfoot and I lived down the street from Frank Gifford and they were covering golf back then in a big way, ABC Sports. And so Frank got myself and my best friend Kyle, his son, a job working the 1972 Women's Open and then the 1974 Massacre at Wingfoot uh, when Hale Irwin won at seven over par. Um, or was it nine over par? It was either seven or nine. <laughs> And uh, and so that was my first entree into golf television and then went from there and, you know, started working for ABC when I got out of school and and really centered it around golf tournaments um, and then found the job at HBO in uh, February of 78. So are you <laughs> going to be going back? Obviously, we have the, the U.S. Open being played there this year. Are you going to go check yeah, it out? Yeah, but we're... Yeah, well, I would, but we're not really allowed, are we? Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask for credentials because it's too hard to get, you know, in. I, I just no, no fans. They're just doing it with no fans. It's kind of sad. Right. Um, maybe if I get some work with the USGA, I can figure it out. Maybe there's a documentary there. You know, I, I, there you go. I mean, can you believe a major without fans? Wow, no, that's going to be something. That's going to be something. Yeah. I know. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go to the Masters and Augusta National every year since 2001. And yeah. uh, obviously, it doesn't look like that's going to happen this year. We're still waiting to hear officially, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that's not going to happen. And I just can't imagine a Masters, a Sunday at a Masters, right? You know, the Masters starts on the back nine on Sunday. I can't imagine no patrons at a Masters. I mean, it's either. just... It's it's numbing when you think about Tiger, you know, a year ago, and then you think about 86 with Jack. Can you imagine if all that happened and you didn't hear those roars? I mean, it's, right. you know, what a magical place that is. I had the chance to go in 2016. My good buddy, Sean McManus, I, I told him every year, I'd say, I want to go. I think I want to go. And then finally he said, will you come in? And I said, yeah, I'll be there. And 
talk about a bucket list. I mean, that, that is, that place, probably the best place to watch a tournament in the country, by the way. No one ever really talks about it, but, you know, it's the number one spectator, um, golf course in America because with all those crowds, you can still, you know, see two or three holes in standing in one position. I mean, it's the most astounding thing I've ever seen. Because growing up, I used to go to, you know, not only Wingfoot, but Westchester Country Club had a tournament every year. And I used to go there. And, it, you know, you had to kind of plan it out. You had to walk all over the place and and try to, you know, catch up to someone. In those days, it was Arnold for me. I have to see Arnold. Um, but, yeah, it, it really is a, an amazing feat they've done down there. And what was what was your first impression? You know, if you, that was the first time that you stepped foot on the property, what was that like mm-hmm. for you? Well, I think like everyone, you just don't realize, you know, like eighteen is straight uphill, and so that's it's bizarre to have watched it my whole life and to see the texture and the the slope of you know thirteen and fifteen, and it it just it's just a little different. Um, first of all, the beauty of it is unparalleled. Um, but you know, you really are taken with the fact that the holes at live are a little bit different than they are when you're sitting there watching on television. You know, the proximity between like the, um, 15th and 16th is incredible. You know, that when I was saying you could see from one position, two holes, there's a place in this certain stands where you see that third shot or if someone goes for it on 15 you can watch that and at the same time you can peek around and see what's going on on the 16th green um so you really don't realize that till you're there you know right ross you've mentioned the work you've done uh, with the usga and you've done a handful of specials about my golfing idol, Jack Nicholas, and you and you did a wonderful yeah. special about the '62 U.S. Yeah. Open in a sort of a, ret- a retrospective with both he and Mr. Palmer. What was it like yeah. putting that project together? Oh my God! I mean, talk about you know going to heaven. I, I, I can I can tell you that I've had certain days in my career that I look forward to, and then magically they lived up to it and beyond. So, you know, we decided that one of the things we wanted to accomplish was to get Arnold and Jack to Oakmont to walk the course or as much as they could, you know, at the ages of, at the time, like uh, 72 and 82. Um, and so we brought them both there. We, we had Jack's putter brought in from his uh, museum in, in Columbus. And we had Arnold bring his driver and Jack bring his driver from the 62 Open. And there was a famous photo of the two of them standing there in 1962 with their, with their, you know, woods out. And, um, and we matched that photo with them at age 72, 62. We had them walking around, but there were some really magical times there. I mean, we, you know, we went to lunch, uh, between shoots and, and uh got to all order Arnold Palmer's, including Jack, which was kind of fun, <laughs> getting getting some laughs out of Arnold. Um, and then, of course, we got to, you know, 
have them walk the course and, and shoot the two of them. You know, they flew in on a helicopter from Latrobe, where I guess Jack was visiting with Arnold. Um, and I mean, the whole place shut down. The funniest story, though, was I wanted them together on a, on a tee. Uh, so we went to the 10th tee and it was a beautiful spot to kind of get a, a, a shot of the two of them just peering out into the distance. And it's in the film when you see the film. But funny enough, we started shooting that shot from a couple different angles. And all of a sudden, there was a women's local amateur tournament happening with really pretty good golfers. And so all of a sudden, these two women were coming off nine and coming to 10. And they were going to tee off. And they were in a pretty heated match, obviously. And they were good golfers. So as they're coming over, I said, guys, just sit there. I don't want you moving. And, you know, we stopped shooting in deference to these two women. But I said, just just sit there. I want these two women. And they probably knew Arnold and Jack were there. I just want these two women to be able to tee off right in front of the two of you so they can tell their husbands tonight, you know, wow. what happened when they were playing. And so, sure enough, they each get up there and hit their drive each in front of Jack, and both, by the way, hit very nice drive down the middle. I think I would have probably popped it up or jammed it into the ground, <laughs> but uh, but they uh, they just you know went along their way. And apparently, there was a photographer there for the club. And the next day, we were told uh, the guy had taken a shot with Arnold and Jack in the background, and the the person, the woman who belonged to Oakmont. Uh, had that picture sitting in her locker blown up the next day, wow. which we, she was wow. able to bring home to her family. So we made a moment that day. I'll tell you that. Yeah, you what, a, what a thrill. You should have seen the two of them. One of the great, I'm getting chills because one of the great things was to see their love of each other and how much, you know, Jack, it's almost like Jack was um, treating him like an older uh, brother, you know, and he was, he was so respectful and he was so caring for, for Arnold because he was getting on in years at that point, Arnold. And and Jack would, just wanted to take care of Arnold the whole day. Um, I have one other funny story, if you have time, on that day, yeah. which was pretty fun. Uh, so if you, were, if you remember the docu or the tournament, Jack had a putt on 17 that was downhill about three and a half feet. Um, and so he had that putter from Columbus that he had used for so many major wins. I think, I think 14 or something of the majors was with that one putter. And so he brought that putter. And so I said, well, we want to try to recreate that downhill four footer, um, which was a pivotal moment in the match. And he had to hit it fairly hard, take the breakout, sink it. So Jack, uh, took the putt. You know, it was actually on the practice green, but we wanted to fake it. And we ended up not using it in the show, but still we shot it. And so he drilled it right in the middle of the cup. I said, well, you want to take two? He goes, why? And so I said, I guess we don't have to because you made it, you know. So, so, uh, so at the end of that little segment, he, he's looking at the putter. And he's got the guy there, by the way, who brought the putter from Columbus from the museum who had white gloves on when he handed it to, you know, Jack, because it, 
frankly, I think it's worth a million dollars, that putter. And, uh, wow. and so, so Jack says to the guy, you know, I forgot how much I love this putter. I think I might put it in the bag. So maybe we, you know, maybe I'll just put it in my bag and I'll, I'll start using it. And the guy goes, Jack, Jack, you can't, <laughs> you can't use the putter. Okay. That putter is worth a million dollars. You can't use the putter. He goes, really? He was so upset that he couldn't <laughs> start using that putter. Um, you know, cause he did, he had this beautiful, I don't know if you remember his stroke with that putter, but it, you know, yeah. he was in his prime, but my God, it's just, it was just so pure. It, right. it always looked like he would never miss a putt, you know, especially yep. from, you know, 15 feet in. It just was this smooth little stroke. Uh, the way he curled his body and everything. Um, so anyway, so th- those were some magical moments and I'll never forget them. <laughs> was, was it difficult for Mr. Palmer to go through that? I mean, that was, that was certainly, I mean, it was at the height of his, you know, popularity yeah. and, you know, his yeah. strength in the game his hometown. and the tournament he wanted to win. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, and not only did he want to, want to win it, but the, you know, 25,000, fans there, you know, that came from all over the Pittsburgh area and Latrobe area, you know, all drove in to watch their hero who was, you know, he was at the top of his game. I mean, he was, look, we all have experienced Tiger, you know, a year ago at the Masters and all those times he won, but let's not, let's not even go there. When it came to Palmer, in his prime, he was, I would say, the first super, super, superstar in the sport. So it was, he was, he changed the whole dynamic of the game. And Tiger did too, but, but it had never been done to that level before. So he, that was his tournament and no one was going to take it away from him. And this kid, you know, who had shown a lot of potential, because I did a docu on the 60, you know, US Open and he, Jack damn near won that as, uh, you know, 19 years old or whatever the hell he was and, and was playing great golf, but he hadn't won a, a major. He hadn't won a tournament. And so all of a sudden, you know, here he comes and it's in the docu, but you know, there were, there were a lot of booze coming out. They were calling him fat Jack and Arnold the same way they were the day we were with them at age 72 and 82, Arnold was very protective of Jack also um, for the two rounds. They played the first two rounds together because that hasn't changed. They always tried to match up the two biggest names um, in the first two rounds of any tournament. So they were playing together and, uh, you know, Jack was getting booed off the course, really, because uh, no one wanted him to touch Arnold. And then Arnold was defending Jack, you know, and telling people to pipe down. And he was really ticked off, frankly. Um, And they were buddies. You know, people really didn't understand. uh, Were they competitive on the course? Yeah. But in those days, there were a lot of friendships off the course. And those two were as tight as any two in in the sport. Um, You know, they really respected the hell out of each other. So anyway, the point is, Arnold really took that loss hard, except Arnold Arnold wasn't the type to, um, you know, to 
kind of look back either. And, 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 you know, I mean, he wouldn't give you attitude. That just wasn't who he was. So as much as he hated to lose in with, in, uh, at Oakmont, um, he still, he said after that final round, he said, uh, watch out for this guy. You're, you're seeing the beginning of something really special. Right. And he was right. I think one of the things that I learned from watching that documentary that I had never seen before was on the 18th hole of the playoff and Jack mm-hmm. you know, wins by three, but Arnold, yeah. you know, had one sort of last gasp because Jack had about a two quarter yeah. to come back. And maybe if he missed and Arnold makes this really long birdie, but maybe it all, you know, he still has a chance. But anyway, he runs the putt. Arnold runs the putt, you know, four or five feet past and then just yeah. sort of backhands it towards the hole. It didn't go yeah. in. And he tapped it in and then he tried to pick up Jack. He did pick up Jack's mark as if it were match play. And Jack had to go back and still putt it. They made him go back and still putt it. That was an interesting thing. I know. And, uh, and Jack, Jack really wasn't aware of the rule either. Um, but you know, they told him go back. You got to finish because you got to post a score. You can't just, you know, this isn't match play. So, so Jack went back. I mean, I, it's kind of odd because I, I wonder if he placed the ball exactly where <laughs> he was supposed right. to. But uh, but he you know he was so far ahead at that point it really didn't have any bearing on on the uh, on the match or tournament. So so he went off and won it. It was a kind of a weird way to finish you know that that uh, playoff and playoffs are weird anyway in a lot of ways. There's something about the tension of a Sunday you know versus a playoff anyway. So I'm, I'm sure they would have rather seen it end on Sunday. Arnold had a really good shot of winning it on Sunday, remember? Yeah. Well, they both had a birdie putt on the 18th hole. Mm-hmm. They could have mm-hmm. won it from not all that far out, and neither one of them was able to knock it down. But, yeah. I, I know. Do. <laughs> Ross, was, one more before I something. let you go. And um, you did a documentary in a feature film that you mentioned at the top, Miracle, about um, mm-hmm. the 1980 U.S. hockey team. You did that docu, Do Do You Believe in Miracles? And like I say, with mm-hmm. that feature film. And to me, that's the, the, the you know, for my generation, I think the, the most important yeah. sporting event of the 20th century. What was it like for you putting together both of those? Well, that was uh, labor of love. Uh, that story really did something to me. And in, in 2000, you know, I had felt I felt that no one had ever really told the entire story. Um, it wasn't just a hockey game. There was something bigger going on in the late seventies in the United States and you know, that team grabbed everyone's attention for a reason. And as many as many upsets that I had seen at that point in my life, including, you know, being the producer of Tyson Douglas, I had never experience that kind of upset. And we will never see that kind of upset again because, you know, these were a bunch of U.S. college kids going up against probably the best, quote, professional team hockey players in the world. Um, You know, they had beaten many teams from the NHL. They had beaten all-star teams from the NHL. They had not lost in many, many years, including four Olympics in a row, I believe. And there, there was no way, you know, that the United States was supposed to win that. And I knew of the stories of Herb Brooks um, 
and I I matched it up with you know all of the lines for gas and the the difficult times that Carter was having and and the United States going through this you know the hostage crisis and this feeling of inferiority um and the mood of the country was so negative and the cold war with Russia was at its height and that team just for that brief couple of weeks in Lake Placid turned it all around and so I that story just stuck with me and so after doing the docu you we almost I felt like we had the script in front of us you know the story was just laid out in the docu so I had while I was making the docu I got her Brooks to sign a contract because uh, I knew it was a feature and he was great about it and I got his rights and then I was talking I was really in a meeting you know with a guy from Disney and uh just going he asked me what I was doing and I explained that I was in the middle of a documentary on the 80 hockey team and he almost fell off the chair and he said well I've always I've always wanted to make that film and I said well let's go make it I got Kerr Brooks's right so I said he said, in 30 seconds, I sold that film to Disney, um, wow. and then went on the magical ride, you know, uh, Herb passes away like two weeks before principal photography starts, but, you know, we assembled this great crew and staff and a great group of actors, and, and then, of course, you know, Kurt Russell just, I, I can't even, I mean, that, part and that role, that execution of a role was as good as anyone I've ever seen in a movie, frankly. And um and it was just a magical, you know, Gavin O'Connor, great director, uh, just nailed it. And it was his first big film. <laughs> and Disney was great, you know, they got behind it and uh and bang, it hit. Big. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's fun about that movie? It's still you know, a lot of teams and a lot of sports get together the night before a big game and watch that movie for motivation. So I get a kick out of it. It's become a cult classic, you know. When sports movies are classics, they're put on another level, really. And, you you, you know, when Hoosiers is on, I'll, I'll sit there and watch the last 30 minutes over and over again or remember the Titans or, you know, Rocky or, you know what I mean? It, there's something yeah. special about the great uh, sports movies, and, and I, you know, I hear it enough from enough people to know that Miracle is now in that category, um, and that's you know a lot of pride in that. <laughs> and it, as you, you should, know, it's really a tribute tribute to the people who put it together. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, one of my prized possessions for two reasons is uh, a poster from the movie that uh, Jim ah. Craig signed for me because we had ah. the privilege of having Jim on the show not all that long ago. But uh, I got it because, first of all, because it's a Ross Greenberg production, and then Jim <laughs> was good enough to sign it for me. So I have it hanging in my office. So that's one of my prized possessions. Oh, wow. I, I have the poster hanging in my workout room here. Yeah, and one in the office, I think. They gave me a bunch of posters. I didn't get many DVDs, though. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't get any checks. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst part. My goodness. I know. I, know. I don't know what happened Ro there, but 
before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing and the projects that you have coming up? Well, I know I'm on Facebook and Twitter, but I don't I don't hit that Twitter account very often, and I'm on LinkedIn and everything else. So I'm around, uh, and I, I have a website, RossGreenbergProductions.com. So take a look and uh, and stay with me. Uh, I'll uh, have plenty to talk about in the future. Well, Ross, I can't I thank you enough for taking time out of yeah out of your night right, to come Chris. and be a part of this show, and I hopefully hopefully we get to catch up with you again soon. You will. Thanks, Chris, a lot. Thank you, Ross. Take care. Stay safe. All the best to you okay. and your family. Okay. You too. Bye bye. That's a great Ross Greenberg, folks. Go out, you know, and check out his website, RossGreenberg.com. I mean, the 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 stuff that he has been a part of is absolutely astounding, and uh, from a golf perspective. Four specials uh, uh, for the USGA, three of them about Mr. Nicholas, one about the 1999 U.S. Open that Payne Stewart won, and then so many great all-access and, and feature films, and very generous with his time, a wonderful guy, and I really look forward to catching up with him again real soon.